are listening to Sermons by the Park from Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. I'm Pastor Aaron Shepherd, and we have entered the season of Advent. This is a season of expectation and preparation for the coming of Christmas. And of course, Christmas is something very familiar, very comforting, like a well-worn pair of slippers that we put on when the weather gets cold. But the thing about it is, at the heart of Christmas, there is a profound mystery. God coming into the world, being born amongst us as one of us, yet still God. So during this Advent season, instead of rushing on to Christmas, we are pausing, we're waiting. And in the waiting, we are journeying together into the mystery. Here's this week's message. The first scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Then Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled hung the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. According to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the letter of James, which is tucked way back in there uh, towards the end of the New Testament. We're going to be Hearing from chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Let's continue listening for God's word for us here today. Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. See, the judge is standing at the doors as an example of suffering and patience, beloved. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Indeed, we call blessed those who show endurance. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. You join me now in a moment of prayer. Let us pray. Loving God, help us to find it in ourselves today to settle down and take our rest so that you may rise up and set to work. Let us find that place of stillness so that you may make your move 
Stir something in us here today, O Lord, a comfort, a change, a new calling. Let it be your word that speaks to us here today, leading us into the mystery. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. There's a story at the beginning of a book by a social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. The book's called The Happiness Hypothesis, and he starts the book with the story of going on a horseback ride through the Great Smoky Mountains. Uh, it's one of those horseback rides that's led by a park ranger. You go out with a group, and, and everyone has their own horse, and you're going along the trails, and you get to see all the beautiful things out there in nature. Um, Haight had never really ridden a horse before this. And as they were going along, sort of gently swaying back and forth, it wasn't a particularly grueling or demanding ride. But then they came to a narrow and steep part of the trail where there were drop-offs. There was a big drop-off on one side, and the horses were two abreast, one to the other, and, and Hate was on the outside of this arrangement. And um, as they got closer and closer to the edge, he started to get a little worried. And then he saw up ahead, the trail took a sharp turn to the left around a corner. And in front of him was empty space. And he started to panic because he wasn't exactly sure how to get this horse to turn left. And so he panicked and he froze. He didn't do anything. And the horse kept walking toward the cliff and walking towards the cliff and walking towards the cliff. And then it turned to the left and went right around the corner. No problem at all. Uh, you see, he had forgotten that these horses had walked that trail dozens, if not hundreds of times before he ever got on the back of the horse. He wasn't really controlling the horse in the first place. He was being taken for a ride. <laughs> the horses knew every twist and turns, and a tug of the reins was not going to convince them otherwise. While he was panicking, the rider was panicking, the horse just carried on. And this experience is telling um, for Haight's thinking and his research. You see, again, his book was called The Happiness Hypothesis. He was a, a psychologist studying what makes people happy, and he said, he's realized that since the time of Plato and the Buddha, when people think about what makes us happy, one thing that people genuinely tend to agree on is that, is that happiness comes from uniting seemingly disparate parts of ourselves and getting them to, to work together, like a good horse and rider. Of course, the Apostle Paul articulated this problem very well when he talked in his letter to the Romans about why it is that he does what he should not, rather than choosing to do what he knows is right. It's a perennial problem that we human beings have. How do we get our bodies, our intentions, our desires, our ideals, all of those things in sync with one another? And what that horseback riding experience taught Jonathan Haidt is that um, is that we shouldn't necessarily put too much stock in the power of the rider to direct things. He says that we should think of the horse and rider as a metaphor for ourselves. The rider is our rational, conscious minds. And they 
presumably, direct the horse where it goes. The horse is everything else, the unconscious, the unwilled aspects of ourselves. And of course, the horse is the more powerful of the two. It's the thing that actually moves the rider through the world, even though a skilled rider can always be in control of the horse. But even this, Haight says, underestimates the power of our unconscious and unwilled parts of ourselves. He says, really, it's more like a rider on an elephant. And if you think it's hard to turn a horse that doesn't want to turn, imagine trying to turn an elephant that doesn't want to turn. And again, here, the elephant stands in for everything from our bodily functions, like our breathing or the way we sit or that rumble in our stomachs, to our emotional responses, which indeed are something that are often very much outside of our control, in our rational mind's control anyway. And what Haidt says is that the elephant and rider, you see, they each have their own intelligence. And when they work together well, they certainly enable a unique brilliance in human beings, mind and body, rational thought and emotion in sync. But they don't always work together well. Indeed, the upshot of all of this, hate contends, is that to answer the question, to, to address the problem that Paul articulates in that letter to the Romans, we don't necessarily have to train up the rider. We have to train the elephant. We have to cultivate our emotional responses, cultivate our physical responses, practice controlling our bodies and our feelings. That is really the key to experiencing joy. And this third Sunday of Advent is traditionally the Sunday of joy. It's the Sunday that we look to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and we hear the words that Lori read for us uh, so well. The Magnificat, as this passage is often referred to, is one of the most well-known pieces of scripture, probably because it's repeated every year around this time. It's often set to music, treated as a sort of sacred hymn. It's often spoken in kind of prayerful and hush tones. In fact, it's often expressed in this very kind of ethereal, emotionally neutral way. And that's true of a lot of words in Scripture, I think. A lot of the time when we're reading Scripture, the flatness of the words on the page tend to make us focus our minds upon their meaning, upon the lessons, upon, upon what the writer can glean from them, rather than the emotion that they carry or that they convey. I wonder... If we imagine ourselves into that moment when Mary spoke those words, it was when she was with Elizabeth, uh, her older relation, after Elizabeth has just said, pronounced a great blessing upon Mary. In response, Mary responds with these words. And I wonder if you hear those words again in the context of, of these two women, family, greeting each other after not seeing one another for a long time with, with amazing news to share with each other. How do you think that would sound? How do you think that would feel? I don't think it would sound like a hymn. I think it would sound like a teenaged girl describing something 
which has a different sort of emotional register to it. I imagine these words flowing out like a waterfall, right? Conveying this joy, this joy unadulterated. And, and the meanings of those words, again, the meanings of Mary's words are disruptive. They're about the low being raised up and the rich going hungry. They're challenging words that point to the prophets and the traditions. These ideas are powerful ideas, but the emotion which, which they're conveyed, you have to imagine, is, is not scolding or stern, but joyful. And of course, Mary is just newly found out that she is pregnant. And the real question about Mary is always, is she that angelic visage that we always see in the paintings and the statues? Or, after she pronounced this great Magnificat at the beginning of her pregnancy, did she have to endure what every pregnant person has to endure? I wonder if she maintained the joy through those many months of nausea as her body changed and transformed. I wonder if she despaired at the fact that her old jeans wouldn't fit anymore. <laughs> did she wait patiently as, as James said, did she endure all suffering in that kind of placid, emotionless way that we always see in all the paintings? Is that Mary? Or perhaps was a different emotion at play? Indeed, our emotions are a powerful thing. They run like a live wire buried underground through ourselves. We spend a lot of time... I spend a lot of time focusing on the life of the mind and upon the works of our hands, what we do day to day. But emotions, these, these can be a mysterious thing to us, inaccessible and hidden behind the masks we tend to wear. But in this season of expectation, I think we cannot neglect the importance of preparing the way for the coming of Christ not just in how we think about this mystery, but how we respond to it emotionally, how we experience it. In other words, we have, to, we have to train up the elephant to respond to this mystery just as much as we have to train up the rider. Now, even by the standards of most scriptural writing, the, the Christmas story itself is actually a very emotional story. You hear emotions being described through it again and again, and there are two dominant ones. The main one is joy. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. You'll hear it again and again. We hear it in Mary. We hear it from the angels. Rejoicing is what Christmas is all about. But there's another emotion that runs through these stories. Do you know what it is? It's fear. Fear. Fear, we hear it again and again. Every time an angel shows up, some mystery they have to confront. Fear is the emotional response. Fear of the unknown, fear of the miraculous, fear of the mysterious. And the thing about fear is that fear festers while we wait. That's why horror films are made the way they're made. They're not just like a series of grotesqueries that, we, that, that put us off. No, the thing that makes a good horror film is the suspense that builds and builds until you get your 
scare on. And in some ways, that emotion can build in this time of Advent as well, just as much as joy can build, because Advent is a time of transformation, as it was a time of transformation for Mary, and transformation change can be very scary. And that's what James is, is talking about in that letter. He's talking about confronting a changing world with kind of expectation. He talks about the coming of the Lord, and he says you have to, to wait to wait patiently, to remember the prophets, to remember the promises of God as Mary promised them. But the question is, how do we wait? How do we feel when we're waiting? And as I was thinking about that this week, out of nowhere, I'm not really sure how, a word popped into my head. And I thought, that's the ticket. The word word was alacrity. Alacrity. You know this word? You've heard it before, though, right? Yeah. It's often a company, it's often uh, described some action as being done with alacrity, sometimes with joy and alacrity. Those two words tend to get together. I think that's why maybe it came to mind. But I swear when I heard this word in my head, I could not remember what it meant. And so I went looking. I went looking to figure out what it meant, and uh, it means cheerful readiness. Cheerful readiness. It's from a Latin word that means lively or eager. And isn't that just the thing? Isn't that just the thing for this Advent season, for this season of joy? And of course, alacrity is not something you practice. It's not, um, it's not a virtue. It's not an idea. Alacrity is a feeling, cheerful readiness. It's a feeling, an emotion, a disposition to respond to the world in a certain kind of way, presumably one that we can all cultivate for ourselves. But the question is how, right? How do we cultivate this cheerful readiness in this Advent season? And it's not enough to just understand the meaning of the word, right? We can understand, but if we don't feel it, then it's like riding an untrained elephant, right? It will not go where we want it to go. So how do we train ourselves in this feeling of alacrity? I was thinking about this, and I think there's two ways. The first is what I once uh, heard described as a should detox, A should detox. Take every sentence in which you usually insert the word should. I should eat my vegetables. I should exercise. I should go out and be more social. I should get to church on Sundays. I should volunteer to serve on that committee. Take all those words, all those statements about what you should do, and replace should with can. I can eat healthier. I can exercise. I can be social. I can be a more active part of this community. It hits a little different, right? Because can is about what is possible. It's what, about what we are able to do, not what we can be guilted into doing, what we think we ought to do. And can always implies that there's still an option. You can do these things or you cannot 
But the difference here is that what compels you is not necessarily guilt or obligation, but rather your own power to do what you set out to do. And of course, that, that readiness of I can has to be accompanied then with the cheerfulness. And I think the default advice this time of year is to put on a happy face. Put the Santa hat with the jingle bells on, smile, laugh, be joyful. That's what Christmas is all about. Be cheery. But the problem with the exhortation to be cheerful is that cheerfulness is not a mask. If we are about actually using our emotional capacities, then denial and deception about how we feel is not the right answer. And so I think getting to this place of cheerfulness doesn't begin with trying to get there, but going the exact opposite direction. It begins with vulnerability, about being able to answer honestly when someone asks you how you're feeling. You know what? I am grieving in this Advent season. I'm having a hard time with it. I'm worried. I'm stressed when I think about what life will be like in 2023. When we are when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable in that way, it allows the burden of that worry, the burden of that deception to be lifted from us. And if scripture teaches us anything, it's that when we lay our burdens down, lightness and liveliness are given back to us. And that helps us on the way towards this cheerfulness, I think. So between a should detox and, and vulnerability, I think this Advent we can all practice this and cultivate this disposition as we are waiting for the mystery that is the coming of Christ. Let us then wait with alacrity. Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Union Congregational Church and our ministries, you can visit churchbythepark.org or you can find us on Facebook at Church by the Park. You are more than welcome to join us for worship throughout this Advent season at Union, either on Sundays at 10.15 a.m., in person at 55 Rhodes Avenue in Walpole, or online via live stream. We'll also have a special candlelight service on Christmas Eve, December 24th at 5 p.m. I hope today's message has helped lead you into the mystery of this season to open your heart to the wonder of God's presence and the gift of God's grace. Until next time, may grace and peace be with you.